Well, we're continuing this morning in a series titled Made to Thrive. I kicked this off last week, uh, and we talked about learning to thrive or, or looking into God's Word for how we can thrive in five different areas of our lives. And these aren't totally comprehensive, but most of the decisions that we have to make of some consequence will fall into one of these five areas, areas like thriving spiritually, thriving mentally, thriving physically, thriving relationally, and thriving financially. And so as we've kind of kicked things off, we did it with this idea that we were made to thrive. We were not just made to survive, that God created us. He created a perfect world for us. He set everything in motion for us to thrive spiritually, mentally, physically, relationally, and financially. That His word contains the insights and the wisdom and the knowledge that we need in order to do that. Now, I have found, and maybe this is just me, and if it's just me, then you can listen to a kind of a a personal therapy session that I'll have with myself. But I've found that I don't thrive on accident. Anybody else? That I don't just kind of stumble my way into thriving in life. That typically there is some intentionality involved if I'm going to thrive. That I don't just set it on autopilot and everything moves up into the right forever. That there is some intentionality, that there is some discipline that might be involved in thriving. And I think one of the reasons that, that we discount this is that we see the overnight successes out there, and we missed the 20 years of hard work that preceded the overnight success. I was listening to Lisa Turkhurst. She was being interviewed, and uh, she's a writer and has a wonderful ministry and is reaching literally hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people a day with an app that she developed that's a first five, first five minutes, scripture and devotional thought. Um, And she said, you know, it's funny, so many people thought I was an overnight success, that all of a sudden, here's Lisa Turkhurst, and she's writing books, and she's on the radio and everything else. She said, do you realize that I, that I wrote and either self-published or underpublished 500,000 words before I was an overnight success? Dozens of books were written before they ever got published, before she ever kind of made it onto the scene as an overnight success. And I think that's the case for many of us. And we look over the fence or we look uh, across the aisle and we see somebody that seems to have it all together and seems to be thriving. And we, we think, well, why can't I just get lucky? Or we want to buy lottery tickets in these areas of our lives so that we'll just be that overnight success. And yet there is discipline, there is intention, there's this value that we have to place on a consistent attentiveness to God's Word and intentional obedience to it that will produce the lasting harvest of righteousness and peace that we want. And I said this last week, I'll probably remind us of this again once or twice, but this image that we get from the the little logo for the series is that the deeper we put our roots into God and into His Word, the more fruit He can bear in our lives and in his world. And, and really, that's what we are to be about, bearing fruit for the kingdom of God in the world around us. The deepen, as we deepen our roots in God and his word, he will increase his fruit in our lives and his world. So last week, we looked at the, the first, uh, and we talked about how the order matters, that we want to thrive spiritually first and foremost. We talked about the issue of lordship, that Jesus Christ is either Lord of all, or he isn't Lord at all. 
And you could have heard a pin drop a couple of times. We kind of had to squirm with that one a little bit. We kind of had to wrestle with it a little bit. And hopefully that thought has come to you once or twice throughout the week as you have maybe been confronted with areas of your life where maybe Jesus Christ isn't Lord of all. And hopefully you have chosen to surrender those areas to him and to make him truly Lord of all. As the Spirit brings things to mind, we have an opportunity to respond to faith, to the conviction that the Spirit brings to us. Today we're going to be talking about thriving mentally. And I was kind of going back and forth between psychologically or, or emotionally and which word should I use and then mentally popped into my head. And I thought, well, mentally is really what we're talking about. That encompasses the psychological aspects of our lives. It, it encompasses uh, the, the emotional aspect of our lives. And uh, so we're going to talk about thriving mentally. And I was wanting to be careful to not just restate the last series where we talked about all the feels and all the emotions and the emotional responses that we have to God and to, and to the life that we live. And so when we talk today, We're going to be uh, sort of building upon that, not looking at specific emotions, uh, but look at how do we thrive mentally. And if something piques your interest here, you may want to go back to that series, All the Feels. You can find it on our website. You can listen on our podcast. If you're listening in right now on our podcast, hello. We're glad that you joined us. Um, And you can pick up if you missed one of those from the, from the being gone on the summer uh, travels or something like that. Um, but we're going to take some new ground. And I'm going to start by laying a foundation uh, for, for the message from 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 23. I'll just put it on the screen. You don't necessarily need to go there in your Bibles. Um, but here's what 1 Thessalonians 5.23 says, right at the end of Paul's first letter to the church that he had planted at Thessalonica, sort of as a benediction. He says, may God himself... The God of peace sanctify you through and through. May your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And I kind of put the words in red of spirit, soul, and body because it points to this reality that we have as human beings. We were created with three distinct parts that are completely interrelated and, and, and influence each other. We have a spirit, we have a soul, and we have a body. And I want to show you a diagram that I learned probably 12 or 13 years ago as I was teaching a class at a church where I was a volunteer Sunday school teacher for adults. And uh, I was doing a curriculum by Victorious Christian Living and came across this diagram with three different circles representing the spirit, the soul, and the body. And I can't tell you how many times I have drawn this out on a piece of paper or a napkin in a restaurant to help somebody kind of understand how we're made and how we're put together. And you can see on the diagram that the spirit there on the right side, the spirit is the part of us that is aware of God. And scripture tells us that our spirit comes alive at the point of salvation. Our spirit comes alive at the point of salvation and it becomes aware of God. Prior to that, we're kind of born with this body, we're born with this flesh, and the flesh is aware of the world and aware of the things of the world. First, at a survival standpoint, we've got to be aware of what's going on around us, the dangers that might be approaching us. We've got to feed it, we've got to put water in it, we've got to take care of it when it gets sick, and those types of things, and that all has to do with our physical environment. Interestingly enough, last week we talked about the spirit, this week we're talking about the mental side of things or the soul, and next week we'll talk about the physical. So we'll hit all three of these sort of in order. But our physical 
nature or our body is aware of the world. And sometimes in Scripture, this is referred to as the flesh. And the flesh has a somewhat negative connotation with it. It's the part of us that fell with the rest of creation. It's the part of us that doesn't necessarily always do what it ought to do. It's that sinful nature or that, that sin nature that is within us. Also, sometimes referred to as the ego. As we talk about thriving mentally or thriving in the psychological or emotional area of life, our ego plays a big part of this. And our ego kind of gets in the way sometimes, and our ego isn't necessarily our friend. You may not realize this, and your ego doesn't want you to know, but your ego is not always very nice to you. Our ego tends to get us to fixate on the past with regret or on the future with fear, and only really is focused on the here and now and how it responds to the ego. Is it lifting the ego up or pushing the ego down? Now, our soul is at the center of this. The soul is the mind, will, and emotions. This, this is the mental side of things. This is the psychological side of things or the emotional side of things. It's at the center, and it gets input from the body and from the spirit, Now, it starts to look a little complicated, and there's a lot going on here, but really it's quite simple. Your soul is either going to get input from the flesh, from the ego, as it makes decisions, as it believes or sets value on various things, and then the behaviors that flow from that, or it's going to get its input from the spirit, from the spiritual side of things, the side that is aware of God, that is aware of his word, that is aware of his activity in the world. And now the spirit leads us towards Christ-likeness. As we get this input and as we make decisions and as we think and feel and act and we have our behaviors and our beliefs, the spirit, if we're getting input, if our soul is getting input from the spirit, it's going to lead us towards Christ-likeness. Whereas If we're getting that same input from the body, from the ego, uh, that's going to lead us towards worldliness, towards sinfulness. And so you can see how these two are kind of in opposition with each other. The spirit recognizes the abundance of this world, the abundance that God created for us, and is open to that and kind of walks around open-handedly, whereas the ego says there's only so much to go around. i got to get mine, and i got to protect it. And if that means i got to take some of yours, then I will, because that's kind of how the ego functions. It wants to get and protect, whereas the Spirit says there's all this abundance. We can open our hands. We don't have to hoard. We can be open. And so the output of those decision-making is our behaviors and our beliefs and the things that we value. Now, to make this just a little bit more interesting... Uh, we got one more slide that shows how the world sort of surrounds the body. Our bodies are in this world. And we're told in Scripture that we are in the world, but we are not to be of the world. The world is all around us, but you'll see there's a triangle there with God's Spirit. God's Spirit intersects our spirit. God's Holy Spirit comes into our spirit and intersects us. So while the world is all around our body, God's Spirit actually intersects and comes inside our spirit. In fact, Ezekiel 36, you don't need to necessarily go there, but let me read this to you. Ezekiel 36 is a prophecy that talks about when Christ comes and God says, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and I will give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to obey my laws. So you can see that when the spirit 
of our spirit is intersected with God's spirit, he will move us towards the things of God, move us towards Christ-likeness, move us towards obeying him and doing what his word says is best for us to do. So your mind, your will, your emotions are influenced by one of two things, either your spirit, which is inhabited with God's spirit if you are in Christ, or the body, which is surrounded by the world and and leans us, pushes us towards worldliness. Now, Galatians 5 hits the nail on the head with this. It's almost as if Paul had this diagram in front of him when he wrote Galatians 5, verses 16 through 23. You can go there in your pew Bibles. They're in the seats in front of you. Uh, it's page 1815. And I'm going to read this through to you, and then we're going to move on. But you will see how it captures this concept perfectly. Paul says, So I say, live by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the sinful nature. For the sinful nature desires what is contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit what is contrary to the sinful nature. They are in conflict with each other, so that you do not do what you want. But if you are led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. The acts of the sinful nature are obvious. These are the ones that lead us towards worldliness. You've got sexual immorality, impurity, and debauchery idolatry, witchcraft, hatred. I knew I was going to do that. There we go. Discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, and envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. But, that would be a very depressing statement if there was not a but right after it. But, The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. Against such things, there is no law. And so I like to imagine that the body and the Spirit are fixed. It says they're in opposition of each other. They don't overlap and they don't run into each other. The body and the Spirit are fixed, and it's our soul that determines which way we're going to go. Are we going to pursue worldliness? Are we going to pursue the things of the flesh? Are we going to make our decisions, follow our emotions, follow the thoughts that lead us in that direction? Or are we going to move towards the Spirit? And so our soul goes back and forth as these two are fixed. And the degree to which we thrive mentally, as well as spiritually and physically and on down the line, is the degree to which we overlap the Spirit which is influenced by God's Spirit, which leads us to the things of God, leads us to Christ. And so then that sets the foundation for the main passage of Scripture. You're like, wow, that's just the preamble. Holy cow, that was a lot. i gotta, I got I to finish my diagram here. But I really want to spend some time in 2 Corinthians chapter 10. So if you want to flip back about 11 pages to page 1804 and join me in 2 Corinthians chapter 10 because Paul speaks with alarming insight about this in this passage as well. And here's what Paul has to say in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 3 through 5. He says, For though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have, these weapons we have, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God, and we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. 
So Paul is saying here that we are in the world. The world is all around us, but it should not be in us. We are in the world, but the world ought not be in us. It shouldn't be driving the ship. It shouldn't be controlling our mind, will, and emotions. Instead, we are in the world, but we don't do things the way the world does things. If we are in Christ, if we are the new creation, if we are being made new, if we are being led by the Spirit, if the Spirit is taking over and sanctifying us through and through, as he said in 1 Thessalonians 5, then we don't do things the way the world does things. We're on a different playing field. We're doing things a different way. We don't even wage war the way the world wages war. Instead, instead we have divine power. Did you see that in verse 4? We have divine power to demolish strongholds, those strongholds, those habits, those hurts, those hang-ups that, that came into your life through the world, through the body. They, they set up and they're powerful. And, and he's saying we have divine power to overcome those, to tear those strongholds down. We have divine power. In fact, in, in 2 Peter chapter 1, Peter puts it this way. He says his divine power, God's divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. That is good news. We're not left on our own. The Spirit comes into us and teaches us and brings us conviction and shows us the way that we ought to go. We have that divine power within us. That's the Holy Spirit alive in us. And then the exhortation comes in verse 5 to take every thought captive, every thought captive, and make it obedient to Christ. And I love this, this imagery here. For a long time, I don't know, somewhere along the line, I got the, the rebuke and dismiss. Anybody taught to rebuke those thoughts and dismiss those thoughts? I picked that up somewhere along the line, and I would get a bad thought, and I would try to rebuke it and dismiss it. And it would go away, and it would get some friends, and it would come right back. Anybody else? I'd be like, no, I rebuked you. He said, I know, I went and got some friends. Try rebuking all of us. And I, I struggled with this tremendously until I read a devotional one time about this idea of taking every thought captive and making it obedient to Christ. And it's military imagery, it's military language to take a thought captive and to make it obedient. And there is a big, big difference between rebuking and dismissing, identifying and rebuking and dismissing a negative thought, which is good in and of itself, there's a big difference between that and taking that thought captive. Not just sending it. I mean, if somebody broke into your camp in a military situation, you wouldn't say, oh, get out of here. We don't want you around here. No, they're going to go back to the enemy territory and tell them where the camp is and where the weak spots in the wall are. No, we take it captive. We, we have a captive now. And they interrogate, wouldn't they? They say, where did you come from? What do you know? How many are over there? And, and that is what would happen in warfare. And we have to understand there is spiritual warfare going on every second of every day. And we take these negative thoughts captive, the thoughts that come over from our body, we take them captive and we interrogate them. We find out where it came from. And then we make them obedient to Christ. We shift our mind, will, and emotions over to the Spirit rather than just saying, oh, this, this negative thought just keeps showing up. I guess I better just go where it says to go and do what it says to do. And the reason that this matters so much, the reason that this matters so much is the more that you think what you shouldn't think, the more likely you'll do what you shouldn't do. The more often you think about what you shouldn't think about, the more likely you're going to be to do 
what you should not do. In fact, you're more likely to do what you never thought you would do. If you think about the wrong things, if you let your mind dwell on the wrong things, if you let your mind dwell on revenge or on lust or on, on any of these various things that come into us from the body and from the world and they push us away from the Spirit, away from Christ's likeness, the more we think about the things that we shouldn't think about, the more likely we're going to be to do what we shouldn't do. And that was almost the bottom line. That was almost the bottom line, but I didn't want the bottom line to be in a negative context, right? And I realized that the opposite is just as true. The more you think what you should think, the more likely you will do what you should do. The more you saturate your life with God's Word, the more you spend time in prayer, the more time you spend in fellowship, in studying the Bible together, in discipleship conversations, in serving God, in doing good in the world, and seeking to put your roots down into God's Word and into who He is so that you can bear fruit in His world. The more you think what you should think, the more likely you will do what you should do. So they have an inverse relationship with each other. They influence each other. That's our bottom line today. And this is, not just, this is not just something that I came up with. I was thinking about it, it as like Colossians 3. Set your minds on the things above, in the heavenly realms where Christ dwells. We set our mind up there. Hebrews 12, 1 says, Therefore, since we're surrounded by such a cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, get rid of the body, and fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising its shame, is now seated at the right hand of God. The Father. Do you see how this works? We set our minds in the right area. We choose to get our input from God, from His Spirit, from the things of God, and they move us in the direction of God. We seek first the kingdom of God and its righteousness, and everything else will be added unto us. And when those thoughts come in, the negative thoughts, the negative emotions, the, the things that tell us Everything that's wrong about us and everything that's wrong about everybody else and everything that's wrong about the world around us, we come back to the truth. We come back to the Spirit. Remember the What's True About You series. I come back to this often because this is just absolutely transformational stuff. If you weren't here last year, you should go to our website, look for the What's True About You sermon series on the media page and listen to those messages. They were based on four statements that are true about you and they just happen to be true or potentially true about every single person you encounter. So when you're thinking stinking thinking about yourself, you can remind yourself, I am a beloved child of God in whom Christ dwells and delights. I am safe and secure in the strong and unshakable kingdom of God, which is never in trouble. I am never lost or alone because Jesus is always with me and he is never lost. I am enough because God says I'm enough. And I don't have anything to prove to anyone at any time for any reason. And when you believe those things that are true about you, then every believer that you look eyes, lock eyes with, it's true about them too. And so you can't tear them down because they're a beloved child of God and you can't make them prove themselves to you because God says they're enough. They don't have anything to prove to you. And if they're not in the family of faith, if they're not believers, then they have the potential to be. And you have the opportunity to move them towards understanding these truths about themselves. And the Spirit of God will lead you in that and lead you to that. These things are true about you. And they counteract what the world says all the time. The world says it's a scary place out there, but God's word and God's spirit says you are safe and secure in the strong and unshakable kingdom of God. The world says you are not enough. You better measure up. You better work a little harder and do a little more. And God says, no, you are enough. You're worth dying for just the way you are. You don't have anything to prove. 
And we respond out of love to him. And we choose to follow him. And so I want to give you one last little thing. You've probably heard of it before, but this has probably done more for my mental health at various times of my life than just about anything else. It's the serenity prayer. How many of you have heard the serenity prayer? If you spend any time in any kind of a 12-step, they spend a lot of time talking about the serenity prayer. And that was the first time that I really got engaged in. I was in a church with a big Celebrate Recovery ministry. It was a recovery-oriented ministry, and we memorized the serenity prayer. We said the serenity prayer over and over. And that's when I first really started to move beyond just seeing it on somebody's wall or seeing it on a bumper sticker or something like that and to kind of let it take root. And when I first got to know the serenity prayer, I focused on the three words in red on this image. God grant me the grace to accept with serenity the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. And so I was like, it's called the serenity prayer. So serenity is one of the big three. Courage and wisdom, those are, that's what's really at the core of this. And I think that's absolutely true, that, that we want to seek from God the ability to accept with serenity the things we can't change. There's a lot of mental health in accepting the things that you cannot change. And the courage to change the things we should, that we wouldn't be held back by fear, but that we would have the courage to change the things we should. And finally, the wisdom to know the difference. And that's the one I liked the most. Like, God, let me figure out which one is which, because I don't, I don't want to accept something that I ought not to accept. And I don't want to change something that I shouldn't change. But this came back around, as things have a habit of doing, this came back around a couple of months ago, and three different words stood out to me this time. First was the word grace. God grant me the grace. There is a grace involved in this. There is a gift involved in getting this. And the next word is the word to accept. Grant me the grace to accept. Accepting is a really big deal in this world that is fallen and broken and does not work as it should. There are many things that do not work as they should out there and in here. And we need grace to accept the ones that we cannot change. To do so with serenity, obviously. But the grace to accept. Acceptance is so pivotal to our mental and emotional and psychological help. health. And then the word should. You might notice that's in red as well. That it doesn't say the courage to change the things I can, because there are things that I can change that I probably shouldn't change. But it says, grant me the courage to th- change the things I should change. And then the wisdom to know the difference. And it's this word accept, accepting what is versus striving against it. If it, God doesn't lay it on your heart that that's something you ought to change, then maybe there's a degree of acceptance that you need to pray for. God grant me the grace to accept. And that can be, you can start with the prayer right there and fill in the blank with that thing that you just can't change. That's just a reality that you have to deal with. Pray for the grace to accept it rather than to strive against it. To, rather than seeking to secure all of your preferences, to simply surrender to God's will and say, is this something that you're wanting me to surrender to? Is this something that you're wanting me to, to pray for the grace to accept? And then to discern the Spirit, to seek the courage to change the things you should, not just the things you can, because there are things that I could change in this world that I probably should not. I have the ability, I have the free will, I have the power to make some changes that wouldn't be good changes for me or for anybody else. So we only want to change the things that we should change. We seek to discern the Spirit 
We're back to our diagram. The spirit versus the flesh. What, what, what is, where am I getting the input from right now as I consider various forms of action? And that's part of what taking every thought captive means. We interrogate it. We say, are you coming from the world through my body or are you coming from the spirit of God through my spirit? And we ask that question. We interrogate. We take those thoughts captive and then we make them obedient to Christ because the ego is usually going to be rooted in some sort of complaining or gossiping or grumbling or something somewhat negative or fearful or pessimistic. Whereas the spirit... God's Spirit is going to be involved in celebrating or praising or giving thanks or blessing someone else or serving someone else or giving and being open with someone else. That those are the things that God will move us towards through His Spirit. The ego is going to deal in either victim or villain. You follow your ego long enough, it'll convince you that you're a victim or it'll turn you into a villain that's going to take more than is needed. It's going to act in violence. It's going to, that's what the flesh does. That's what the world does, left to its own devices, not held in check. But God's Spirit points us to the victory that we have in Christ, points us to the hope that we have in Christ, points us to the reality that He's working all things together for good, that His love never fails, that the Lamb of God came from heaven above and came to this earth and died a horrendous death to pay the penalty for the sin in our lives so that we would not be separated from God for eternity. And that is good news. And it resonates with our spirit if we are alive in Christ. So let's go back to 1 Thessalonians 5.23. May God himself, the God of peace, do you know peace and serenity are almost interchangeable. They're, they're, practically, they're practically synonymous. May the God of peace sanctify you through and through. Sanctify means to be made holy. It's the Holy Spirit that will sanctify you through and through. It's the Holy Spirit that will make you holy. May your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. May the God of peace sanctify us through and through. I want to say that, that thriving mentally takes place to the degree to which we overlap our soul, our mind, will, and emotions with our spirit, which is intersected by God himself. And the Holy Spirit will lead us into all the truth, Jesus said in John 17. The Holy Spirit will lead us into the truth. And so as we shift over and take on, I'm moving in my direction, but on the diagram, we want to shift over so that our spirit overlaps, that our mind, will, and emotion are completely and totally and utterly aware of God, right? Intersected by God's spirit. So that it's not so much about identifying and rebuking the things of the world. It's not so much about suppressing the ego. It's more about ignoring it. Getting away from it. What did John the baptizer say? He said, I must decrease. He must increase. The part of me that is of the world must decrease and diminish and move out of the picture. And the part of me that is influenced by God, by his Holy Spirit and residence within me is what should be moving me forward. That needs to be increasing within me. Because the more often you think about what you should think, the more likely you will do what you should do. And you will thrive Mentally, psychologically, emotionally, to the degree to which you overlap with God's Spirit, with His Word, and with what He lays before you.
Would you pray with me today? Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for creating us so fearfully and wonderfully made, Lord. We are complex. And yet, there is hope. You will not leave us to ourselves. You have given us your spirit. You invite us to respond in faith to the good news of the gospel, to wake up every day and respond in faith to the good news of the gospel and to seek to overlap our mind, will, and emotions with your spirit, with your word, with what you have revealed to us. And I pray, Lord, that that we would be a people who thrive because we get this, because we choose, because we make a decision, because we intend, and we give our attention to the things of God, because we read your word every day, because we spend time in fellowship, because we spend time in service, because we spend time in worship, that our thoughts would become your thoughts, that your thoughts would become our thoughts, and that our ways would become just like your ways. And so, Lord, as As we respond here in worship, may we also respond in faith. And if your spirit needs to lay conviction on someone, may we respond in faith to that conviction. If there's someone here who doesn't know you as Lord and Savior, who's never never responded in faith to the gift of salvation, may today be the day that they reach out and accept that. May nothing hold us back. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.